God is good all the time. Welcome to week six of Jesus of Nazareth, or as he would have been called in the Aramaic language of his day, Yeshua Nazareth. Remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, a dialect of Greek called Koinea, but people spoke in Aramaic, Yeshua Nazareth. In the series, we're exploring the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we call this material the Sermon on the Mount. These teachings have been available to Christians in some way or the other for almost 2,000 years. Think about this. Times change. Empires rise and empires fall. There are wars. There are rumors of wars. Wars end and new wars begin. But the words of Jesus remain the same. They are very much a constant in a world of variables. I think you can know Jesus Christ without understanding Jesus of Nazareth, if you will. But I do believe that if you know something about Jesus, where he grew up, what his life was like, the the contents, the political atmosphere out of which he spoke, I do think we catch nuances into his teachings that we would miss otherwise. Though Jesus' teachings are not bound by time and space, he did speak from a specific space, which would be Galilee for the most part, and a specific time, more or less, 30 A.D., The ancient historian Josephus claimed that first century Galilee had 204 villages and two freshly minted cities. You had Jewish Tiberias, I mean Roman Tiberias, and you had Jewish Sepphoris. The whole region of Galilee is only 45 miles long north to south and being suspended between the eastern superpowers back in the roaring BCs and Egypt to the south, ancient Galilee was often a battlefield. And it really changed hands often. And when somebody defeated it, they would bring in colonists. And then the next folks would bring in colonists. And after a while, it got to be a fairly eclectic region. By the time we get to Jesus, Jews in mass had probably only lived there for 150 years or so in terms of a lot of people in the area. This is where Jesus grew up. This is his world. There would have been a a hill, even in Jesus' world, of a place that we call Tal Megiddo today. Tal Megiddo is a single hill, a single city, if you will, that has had 25 civilizations, one built on top of the other, because ancient Galilee was just a straight-up battlefield. If you think about it, if you keep up with world history and what's going on in the world right now, there's fear that Galilee is going to be a battlefield again from the north. This is troubling. Anything but historically unprecedented. This is where Jesus' people lived. People in Galilee were hardworking. They were robust, rugged sorts. They were free thinkers. They were hot-headed, and they hated Roman occupation. 
eight days a week, they hated Roman occupation. If there was a way to show with infrared every step that Jesus took on the earth, I think 95% of them would be up in the Galilee. To use the St. Louis term, Galilee is where Jesus went to high school. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount by instructing that the more out of control that our lives may seem, the more aware we are of our need for God. If what is presently unfolding in Israel or what's presently unfolding in your life is breaking your heart, if it's driving you to your knees, if it's getting you into the Bible, if it's prompting you to get your heart right with God, Jesus would say, blessed are you. Jesus then challenged his followers to be what's good in the world. What are we to be right now? We're to be what's good in the world. We are to be salt. We are to be light. And then Jesus declares himself to be the very fulfillment of the law of Moses. His persistent theme is religion can't save you, but I can. And I want to be real clear about something today. Religion can't save you, but Jesus can Now Jesus pivots to the great three components of Jewish religious life that towered above all others. Offerings, prayer, fasting. That living for Jesus in a fallen world is going to be hard sometimes is something Jesus promised us. Now I realize that when you check out of big box stores and they have a religious section near the checkout and there's all these little pamphlets and it says promises of Jesus, I realize this is a promise that's not going to be included. But Jesus promised if we follow him, we're going to have a tough go of it sometimes. It's to mediate this reality that Jesus poured the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount into his disciples so they could minister to the desperate people who were gathering below them on the hillside. Jesus knew the world was going to beat us up a bit. And that's one thing that is just part of the cost of living. The world's going to beat you up a bit and sometimes it's going to kick you with its boots on. And Jesus is saying, what do you do then? See, if you're religious construct only works when everything's moving up into the right what you really have is a baptized hunk of nothing our beliefs got to hold firm in the worst times in life when everything's blowing apart that's where we discover what our belief system is truly made of and Jesus is pouring in to us saying, incorporate these things into your life, and no matter what comes, and I assure you, some of it's going to be tough. You'll be ready, not only to make it, but to help other people as well. Jesus knew there'd be times when his followers would feel spiritually weak and depleted and and drained, and maybe even tempted to give up altogether. Jesus was equipping his followers to stay soul strong and healthy and optimistic and effective for the long haul. You know, many of us are impulsive. I ran a little Facebook poll last week. I said, are you impulsive? And people immediately said they weren't. (laughs) Most of us tend to get over-involved. Most of us have yes as a default. Most of us tend to get overcommitted. 
And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then we get frustrated and burned out. And then we back off and we either give up for a while and then try to reboot it all over again. Or we just somehow bear it, feeling a little less alive every day. A lot of times, the way we function in this modern world is simply not sustainable. It's not sustainable for Christian people. It's not sustainable for the ministry of Christ. It's not sustainable for the church. I would argue that many of us are living lives that were never intended for us to live because they're simply not sustainable. What is sustainable is developing the spiritual practices that are required for serving Jesus over the long haul. The great thing is that Jesus clearly gave these practices to us. The not so great thing is that we don't practice them. You know, it's so funny. How many times in life we know exactly what we need to do? It's just doing it that's hard, right? We know exactly what we need to do. Doing it is what's so hard. Prayer, fasting, and giving are the three legs of the sustainability tool that Jesus gave us. We explored prayer last week. This week, we're going to explore fasting. Fasting has become a lost discipline in the church. And I would argue it's been lost to our own detriment. I'm going to be very authentic here because that's sort of how I roll. But of all of the spiritual disciplines, fasting is the area in which I most often come up consistently short. I really have a pretty healthy prayer life. I'm a very cheerful giver. Fasting? Eh. I wouldn't say it's rolling with great regularity. It's kind of like a club in my golf bag that would be really helpful, but I just don't use it much. I can tell you that when I came face to face with this passage this week, that I was convicted. Have you ever read the Bible and just been convicted? I do not fast often enough. And it was kind of like God spoke to me in the way that God uniquely uniquely speaks to me. And God sort of said, hey, Captain Weak Sauce, why don't you fast more? And I got thinking about that. I I really did. And, And it's not because I love food so much. I mean, I like food fine. But that's not the reason. The reason is because I like my routine. I'm a routine guy. I love my routine. If any of you ever see me doing something or posting something that seems really adventurous to you and exciting, I want to assure you, I can't wait to get that over with so I can be boring again. I love my routine. I do the same things at the same time every single day. I bore my rescue dogs. It is unbelievable. I just like routine. I find comfort in routine. And that's why I don't fast often enough. I bet you don't fast often enough either. Fasting is the abstinence of food for a prescribed time for spiritual reasons. And frankly, the Bible doesn't offer very many specifics. But here's what really gets me. Fasting is an intentional and disruptive break from our normal routines 
that offers us an opportunity to create space for God to work in our lives. And it's sort of like, oh, well, if you put it that way. But that's what it is. It breaks our routine so that we can create space for God to work in our lives. It's a spiritual practice that cleanses, rejuvenates, renews, restores. It affects our mind, our body, our spirits, our wills, our emotions. And maybe the reason we feel so ground down is because Jesus gave us something to address that and we keep that plug in the club in the bag. I just know that when I was preparing this message this week, I felt convicted. Guilty. Guilty. I don't do this often enough. Methodist people have historically called fasting a means of grace. It it just means that's a way that God reveals himself to us. And in the Israel of Jesus, fasting was a common religious practice. Uh, The best I can tell, the Bible doesn't go into it. Jews fasted from sun up to sun down. There was one compulsory fast each year on the Day of Atonement. On that day, people didn't just refrain from eating. They really broke their routines. They often refrained from drinking, bathing, wearing shoes, and all sexual activity. History tells us that the Pharisees fasted during the daylight hours every Monday and Thursday because they were holy rollers. And for them, it was a liquid fast, meaning they didn't eat solid foods. John the Baptist's followers were known to fast as well. So why people have historically fasted? Let's take a quick look at that. Why have people fasted throughout history? Number one, there were routine fasts. There were times that this is when people fast. It was normal religious practice. Number two, mourning. We lost a beloved member of our faith community to an automobile accident this week. There are a lot of us just hurting. Mourning was a way that people grieved. They didn't eat meat or drink wine in in the period between death and burial in antiquity. Number three, just repentance. Fasting showed sorrow for sins that were committed. There were prescribed annual days. There were national days of fasting that generally called nations to repent of sin. There were also Times that were just called by the prophets. The the prophets would say, pray, fast, turn to God. And there were periods of history where there was just a clarion call from the prophets of God. Number six, sometimes people fasted to receive a word from God. You know, maybe you need to hear from God right now. You say, well, I'm, I'm having trouble getting clarity on that. Fasting is a way that people heard from God. And and seven, people fasted to be an example to others. Leaders sometimes have to fast to encourage other people to fast. And then number eight is just kind of an obedience to a ping. People are free to fast anytime. You don't have to wait to be invited to fast. And maybe that's my problem. I think I wait to be invited to fast. If we're all doing an all-church fast day, I'm in. But as far as being a regular practice, it's just not there. That people of faith would fast was a given for Jesus. So it's interesting that Jesus begins by questioning the motives of the people fasting. It's really what always got Jesus into trouble. Because Jesus could never just let the holy rollers roll. 
You could argue that a clear theme of the Sermon on the Mount is questioning the motives of the religious establishment. So he says, if you fast, don't look disheveled. Don't look bad. Don't let your hair get looking bad. Don't have a mournful look on your face. If you fast, look completely normal. And I know what you're thinking. Shane, are you fasting now? No, I'm 61 years old. This is just how it goes. (laughs) Jesus said, question your motives. And when you do this, don't grandstand. Jesus is all over saying, stop the religious grandstanding. Lean into God. Lean into God. For Jesus, it's only when there's nothing in it for us that we discover who we truly are. One of the things I really look for in people is how do they treat folks that can never do anything for them? Everybody treats their boss well, at least to their face. Everybody treats people who are influential well because there's this idea maybe they could do something for me. But how do you treat the people who could never possibly do a thing for you? That's a real indication of character. And for Jesus, character is often displayed by true altruism. When we treat people well who could never do anything for us, it says something about us. And Jesus says when your piety is performed in solitude, you're all good. Because it's coming from the heart. His command for fasters is is when you fast, do it for the right reasons. Don't make a show of it. and, And do it as normally as possible. But your father will know. And he will reward you. Jesus reminds us again and again, acts of piety are rewarded once. The reward comes either from the admiration of people or the pleasure of God, but it's not going to come from both. If we fast to impress people, we may well do so, but that's all the reward we're ever going to receive. But if our motive is to be obedient to God, to release the flow of God in our lives, to better know God, then fasting gives us the ultimate reward of Christianity, which is a relationship with God himself. The ultimate reward is not what God can do for you. It's that we may know God. The purpose of fasting is not to get God's attention. We fast so God can get our attention. So I need to be kind of blunt here, but... When you fast, you need to understand what it is you're doing. You're not lobbying God to do what you want God to do. Dear God, I want you to do this, and I'm not going to eat until you do. That's a little weird. Right? You're not Gandhi, and God's not India. It's not going to work. We fast to create space in us to actually hear from God, to intensify our relationship with God, to allow God to get our attention. And sometimes to get our attention, God has to get us beyond our shopping list of what we really think God ought to be doing if God just did his job a little better in our estimation. The passage that really interests me on fasting is found in Mark 9, 20. Nine. Jesus commissioned the disciples to go out and do ministry, gave them the authority to do it. They tried to cast an evil spirit out, doesn't come out. You ever done something that just didn't work? And they go back to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we tried to cast this spirit out and it didn't come out. 
And the text reads, Jesus replied, that kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. The 1611 King James, which I'm sure you guys visit regularly, reads, Jesus' reply is this. That kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. 1611. Since 1611, archaeologists have found much older manuscripts than the King James translators had available. And they have discovered that in many of the older manuscripts, the words and fasting were not in the parchments. It apparently had been added by the early church. It's not in some of the older ones, and then it shows up in all of them. In your translation, there may very well be an asterisk there that points that out. For me, that late addition does not corrupt the text. In fact, it's no problem at all because it was in the text when the Bible got canonized. So I believe God got us everything God wanted us to have in the Bible. But he apparently went way out of his way to get this piece to us. And I have to ask why. One thing's clear. Fasting had become a very important part of the early church. Not just seen as a religious practice, but a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. It adds firepower to our prayers. So at least in this case, Jesus taught that fasting unlocks God's healing power. It takes what we're doing in ministry to the next level. It is exponential in nature. For Jesus, offerings, prayers, and fasting are intrinsically linked. They're each a form of sacrificial denial that opens up the door for God's work to be done in us and Christ's work to be done through us. We are denying of ourselves. This contrarian gospel of Jesus cannot be overlooked. We live by dying We receive by giving. We become great by being servants. Everything about the kingdom of God is backwards in its orientation. So in these three things, we, in the giving of offering, we sacrifice our love of money. In the offerings of our prayers, we sacrifice our love of control. And in fasting, we sacrifice our love of food and of our routines. All three are about trading what we want for what God wants us. It's a holy exchange of our way of thinking and our sensibilities to God's way of thinking and God's sensibilities. Through such flesh-denying practices, we learn to see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. Spiritual disciplines are about conforming our spirits, bodies, wills, and emotions to the will of God. That God's work may be done in us, that we may be transformed. By God. Some of you may be discouraged by your own religious apathy. Your own Christian apathy. Have you ever wished you wanted to do something that was a perfectly good thing to do? You just sort of wished you wanted to do it. You know, everybody's going to be doing this. And you think, gosh, I wish I wanted to do that. That sounds like something good people would do. Man, I wish I was just a little more altruistic. Is Is there perhaps... An altruism drink I could try. You know, just to sort of point me in the right direction. I know when I read this this week, I, I was just convicted 
Lord, why, why don't I do this more? You know, why, do, why don't I do this more? Well, you know what? I think it might be a good thing to take a look at. Why don't we do this more? And maybe it's because we don't get it at all. Take a quick look. I think fasting's awesome. I mean, where else can you combine spirituality and dieting all in the same way? I mean, I think it's a bound rap, pound for pound it does. You know, people think it's for monks or supermodels and stuff like that. But I'm here to tell you it's for everybody. Last summer, I had a 20-year reunion slash barbecue slash swim party to go to, and I done but had to drop about 85 pounds. So thanks to fasting, what has two thumbs and look good in a swimsuit? This guy. Thank you, Jesus. Fasting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's great to uh, skip a meal or two so you can hear God's voice better, you know? Stay plugged into him. Yeah. You know, some people uh, fast from phones and music and gadgets. What? That's, that's not a sacrifice. That's, that's not even biblical. I mean, that, that's crazy talk, you know? I mean, God gave us this stuff so we could stay plugged into him, maximize our lives. It also keeps us busy enough to never be still or quiet. Are you even a Christian? I dare you to fast from your phone for one minute. You know, fine. Minute. You got it. No biggie. I don't care. I probably should take that. I fast. Okay, that's a total lie. I don't even fast at all. Okay, I want to. Another lie. Don't even think about it. Deal is, I'm hypoglycemic and diabetic, and that's not even close to the truth at all, okay? Hey, even the Bible says, he who hopes dies fasting, right? Right? Okay, Benjamin Franklin said that right before he died. Bottom line, fasting makes me hungry. Are we almost uh, done? Hello! I'm Brett Johansson, and I believe that fasting is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines one can achieve in their faith. When my family or friends invite me to go to lunch, I gently remind them and passive-aggressively admonish them by reminding them, did you not get my fasting notification email? Oh, that I had the luxury to eat lunch like you do. <laughs> Every year around Easter, I go through a 40-day fast to heighten my sensation of the Easter holiday. This year, however, I've decided to tack on 10 extra days. <laughs> so by the time we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, I will have been fasting for 50 whole days. If I survive. In my fast, I have a very rigid schedule. And if you do not have a rigid schedule, then God does not approve. Some people like to cheat and they drink flavored waters and juices within the fast. You must be drinking unfiltered well water. And if you do not drink unfiltered well water, God does not approve. In the afternoon, I put a cone of silence around me. I do not talk to anyone. Yes, that does annoy people. Yes, it does anger my coworkers. I am persecuted within my fast. And if you are not persecuted within the fast, God does not approve. When I get home, I go straight to my prayer closet. I do not talk to my wife. I do not play with the kids. I let them fend for themselves. And if the kids do not fend for themselves and the wife does not get talked to, God does not approve. You know what? I'm going to ask nice one more time and then I am not in control of what happens, okay? So give me the phone. Okay, fine. Oh. 
I need the phone. I, I need to call. So that was helpful. God just called me out this week. Have you ever read the Bible and God just called you out? He just called me out and asked, why don't you do this? And I had to be honest. You ever just get honest before God? Forget all your excuses that you always make. Just get honest before God. And I got honest before God. And I said, God, obviously my established routine is more important to me than being obedient to Jesus. How's that for honest? I mean, horrible, but it's honest. Why don't people come to church? Because other stuff's more important to them. It's horrible, but it's honest. At some point, we have to get honest before God. And I love it when Jesus loves on me, but sometimes Jesus shoves on me. And when that happens, I've always got a choice. I can bull up and I can make excuses and I can walk away or I can get on my knees and repent before a holy God and walk upright with him and I'm just gonna choose door number two. I need to repent. I need to change me. Not you, me. And one of the great things about dealing with this material in a block is that we begin to see through the lens of Jesus. It's in its context. And we begin to see how Jesus sees. And when Jesus calls us out, We have to be real honest about who we are and where we are and where we stand. If nothing else today, just get honest with Jesus. I've always got a lot of irons in the fire, but the past few months they've all gotten hot at once. My dad always warned me of that, but that's happened. Uh, These days I feel pulled a thousand directions, always behind. Things seem at times less sustainable by the minute. And I was at a point... This week where I was thinking, man, something just needs to change. But what? You know, you can always schedule in a vacation, and you know how that goes. You'll get back with a tan, but it doesn't really change anything. And then I thought, well, should I quit doing all the stuff God's blessing? Well, that doesn't make sense either. And then something just kind of occurred to me this week while I was reading this. Why don't I try being obedient to Jesus? Seriously, why don't I try just being obedient to Jesus? He said to pray, boom. He said to give, boom. He said to fast. And that's actually pretty easy, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to do. You just got to do it. But sometimes doing it can be a little bit tough. What might happen in our lives if we decided to be obedient to Jesus? What would happen if we just started in this one area? Might our faith inertia currently at rest, be thrust into motion? Might we receive the guidance we've been looking for from God? Might spiritual clarity come? Might spiritual renewal come? Might our soul be cleansed? Might we get a hold of some overcoming power? Might we have some boldness to share this wonderful faith of Jesus Christ? Maybe fasting is a thing that's holding us back. And all we got to do is choose to be obedient to God. When we fast, we engage in a two-edged proclamation. Number one, we say, Jesus, you will rule my life, and you'll rule every area of my life. And I believe that once God brings something 
in front of us. Now we have to be obedient or disobedient. And we can't live our lives with Bob Seeger theology, always wishing we didn't know now what we didn't know then. Because the Bible tells us what we need to know now. And what I need to know now is that in my life, this is something I need to pay some attention to because I've not paid enough attention to it in the past. So when we fast, we're saying, Jesus, you rule in our lives. But we're also saying, flesh, you will not rule in our lives. You see, I believe if we do things Jesus' way, we'll get Jesus' results, period. And for me, this is that next thing in my life that I feel Jesus is calling me to. So I'm going to throw an idea at you. I'm going to do this, whether you do or not. But as it all turned out, God kind of called me to lead in the church. So I'm going to throw an idea at you. And this is the part where you start getting nervous because it's going to involve you. Okay? So here we go. I'm going to throw this idea. Here it is. Here it is. I'm going to invite you to join me in a fast tomorrow. In a fast tomorrow. You say, well, why tomorrow? Ask me a serious question. And here's the plan. Decide right now what you're going to give up, all right? Just give up something concerning food intake tomorrow. Give up whatever God brings to your heart right now. Whatever it is, give it up. Some of you may say, okay, I'm not going to eat all day, all right? That's fine. Some of you may say, well, I'll just give up a meal. Some of you say, well, I'm going to give up sweets tomorrow. One person said they were going to give up coffee, and I said, don't you be grouchy around your wife or she will knock you out. So whatever it is you give up, don't make other people suffer too badly. But just give up something that will throw off your normal routine. Give up something that you would normally do very regularly. Give it up and create some space in your life. And now I want to give you three things to pray about tomorrow. So if you don't have anything to write on, you can write on your hand. If you don't like writing on your own hand, just write on the hand of the person next to you. They love that. All right. So. There are actually offering envelopes you can use. If you have to, you do get a dispensation for this one. All right, three things. Number one, pray for Israel. This is a mess, and this could go really, really bad, and there are theological implications. Pray for Israel. It's a good thing to do. When you pray, create some space. If God brings some specific things for you to pray, lean into those. Create some space. Number two, pray for Christ Church. Pray for Christ Church. Anything God brings to your heart concerning Christ Church, Lift it in prayer. And number three, pray for a specific area in your life. One specific area. You see, I'm a firm believer. If we start our prayers big, I assure you we'll always get to small. But if we start our, small, our prayers small, we'll seldom get to big. Start big, work small. Israel, Christ Church, one need in your life. Create some space. If God pings you, prompts to you around that, spend some time praying. Create some space. If you decide to give up coffee tomorrow and you normally spend five minutes sipping on a cup of coffee, spend that time with prayer. Get off by yourself. Focus your mind. Do these one at a time. And that's it. That's it. We're going to take a step. Why? Because we're going to break the inertia of objects at rest. And we're going to get them into motion. And then we're going to see what God wants to do. You see, if we're going to be serious Christians, we have to decide to put the clear teachings of Jesus in play in our lives. And once God brings them to our attention, we are responsible. Whether or not we want to do it, 
or not really doesn't matter. We have to ask ourselves, who do we trust? Do we trust Jesus or do we trust ourselves? We have to have the faith to believe that if we do things Jesus' way, we'll get Jesus' results. So I'm going to ask you to join me in a fast tomorrow. Just give up something. Break your routine. Create space. Israel, Christ Church, something going on in your life. Would you pray with me? Forgive us, O Lord, that we do things our way and expect your results. Give us a desire to be obedient to the teachings of Jesus. And give us a true desire to please you. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Not to bring condemnation upon us, but to bring the kind of conviction that leads to repentance and the kind of repentance that leads to freedom. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you'd like to pray, altar's always open. There'll be some folks at both sides of the room that would love to pray with you. Let's stand together. Let's proclaim that we're going to put Jesus first in our lives. It's got to start somewhere. We'll start tomorrow.